Welcome back. Okay, Karen. With, yeah. it's, getting, it's either getting loose or, or bound. Like, like right. we bind people in marriage. Or right, marriage, right. And then we lose them. Right, we tend to think of binding as a bad thing, but there, there, it can be a good thing, too. But it, it's yeah. all about relationships versus... You're speaking about absolution now, so I've always understood it as you bind someone's sins or you lose their sins. That's what I... Well, to release them normally is taken as they're forgiven. To hold them bound means you're holding them bound in their sins. So they come to you in chains, spiritual chains, and you're holding them bound uh, in the hopes. Um, i got to be very careful, especially since this is being taped, but I had that experience um, where a, a person refused to repent. And at after like the third time of saying, well, you, you have to. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I couldn't comprehend that someone was going to like, refuse to repent of this re- really notorious sin. And they said they, they refused. And I started shaking because I knew I was going to have to hold them bound. And the idea, you know, I, I love it. You baptize someone, you're kind of bringing them to Jesus. You know, you marry someone, hopefully you're doing something good for them, right? You know, but here he's going to do this. I, I couldn't believe it. And I begged this person to be sorry. And they, you know, no way they were going to continue and, and so forth. So I called them by name. And I said, so-and-so, um, I hold you bound in your sin and you are cut off from the sacraments of the church. And may God have mercy on your soul. To my incredible shock, it worked. This person burst into tears and, and repented. Uh, it's an incredible story. It's absolutely an incredible story. But that's what binding is, is supposed to be. But it's all about reconciliation, right? Um, if, if someone is saying, you know, um, gee, I refuse. Um, we're just not used to it in our church's culture, you know, in North America. But, you know, the, uh, a priest could, let's say, health permitting, it's all things godly and lawful, right? This doesn't apply if I try to abuse this power and say, you know. Although was, when I was priested at um, the Shodahouse Seminary the, the next day, you got to remember in seminary there's all kinds of funnies and jokes and a little bit of heresies. And, you know, the next day I sat down and, and I said, uh, and uh, who will get me my orange juice? And then I held up my finger as if I was going to hold them bound, you know, went around everyone, I'll do it, I'll do it, you know, and that type of thing. But it's, um, the idea is that there's a, the authority cannot be abused, okay? Um, and, and in a sense, the priest is holding himself bound there. But when a priest actually does something that's godly, let's say he calls the church to a day of, of prayer and fasting, it would be health permitting, right, that you fast, but a day of prayer and fasting. If someone says, I don't 
you know, I'm not going to participate in that. You know, I've only done something like that maybe less than one handful of times that I've I've been here. I but I have done it. Um, but when people are like, yeah, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Bishop does it to me all the time, by the way. Um, and, you know, you will do this, yes, sir. Um, but um, that's not something to be taken taken lightly. You know, um, even if you think you're right, you go and you you t- like when I think I'm right with the bishop, I'll go and I'll say, Bishop, may I present my position on this? Um, let's look at um, John 20, John 20, verse 19, John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, what evening? The evening of the day of resurrection, okay, this is Easter day, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. The doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I love that as if they were Irish or something. You know, they're Jews too. You know, it doesn't say for fear of the other Jews. It's it's funny. But anyway, um, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Why did he show them his hands and his side? Yeah, because he's the risen Lord. And while it is his body that was raised, the tomb is empty. He was also, he was not resuscitated, he was resurrected. His body was also changed to the point where some did not recognize him. Um, and so it is the tomb, it is this body that is raised. Uh, the tomb was empty, but he wanted them to understand that w- the person that they were encountering is the same Jesus of Nazareth that died for them on the cross, okay, and who was born of the Virgin Mary. So what he's saying literally by the marks are, it is I who stand before you, Okay. Um, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. See, they recognized him in the marks. By the way, um, what are the only man-made things in heaven? The wounds of Jesus. Um, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. See, that's about authority. The Father sent him into the world with, the author- with his authority. Right Now he's sending them from behind locked doors, hiding away in the dark, out into the world. But they are gonna go- they're going to go out with what? His authority. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And what is the word in both Hebrew and Greek for breath? Spirit. Yeah, spirit. Okay. So this is is a sign here that he was breathing upon them the spirit and said to them, in case you don't believe me, receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay. Again, he gives them the ministry of reconciliation. Now, a lot of Protestant interpreters read this. They're not sure what to do with this because this is not Pentecost yet. So they talk about this kind of being um, almost like conception of the Spirit with the full pregnancy and birth being on the day of Pentecost. The only problem with that is that's not how the early church understood this at all. This is not about the Pentecost giving of the Spirit. This is ordination. Well, but not, not in the sense of, of Pentecost, which is when the church as a whole receives the Spirit of, of God. Obviously, as I said before, the Spirit is there when we receive Christian baptism. By the way, it's only our assumption, of course, and I think a very good one, that they received Christian baptism. Um, but it's, it's not recorded anywhere that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, that they received Christian baptism. Because they received the baptism of John, but that's not Christian baptism. Jordan? Um, That's basically what I was going to ask you. Do you think that there's anything to saying that Jesus himself did not baptize anybody personally for the same reason that Paul says, oh, when I went there, I didn't really baptize that many people, so people can't say. I was baptized by Paul, right? People say that all the time. I was baptized by Archdeacon Michael. I mean, it's it's a it's a sad thing, really. Um, although I buy them bumper stickers for their car, um, and uh, and uh, um, but yeah, I you know I think so. I mean, the churches always assume that they received, you know, Christian baptism because they then go out and baptize. Um, but this here is the gift of the Holy Spirit for ordination. By the way, the ordination rites do the same thing. You kneel in front of the bishop, he breathes upon you and lays hands upon you and says, receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the church of God. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you hold bound, they are held bound. And <laughs> held bound. But there's kind of a pun there. They're hellbound, um, and uh, and be a faithful administer of the word of God and of this uh, of His holy sacraments. Okay, so this is going in. This is ordination here. This isn't the Pentecost giving of the Holy Spirit, you know, upon the church as a whole. Okay, Karen, were you going to ask something? Well, yeah, into his death, but then again, think of like the institution of the Eucharist, which is the beginning of his passion. The early church fathers talk about once Jesus was baptized, he didn't, it's one thing that drives me nutty about the 79 prayer book, is it refers to Jesus having received the baptism of John in the Jordan River. Jesus did not receive the baptism of John. He initiated Christian baptism. And so it's kind of one of these out-of-time things. When he goes into the waters, Jesus, and comes out, 
That's a participation in his death and resurrection. So all of us now who are baptized into Christ, we are, we are baptized into his baptism, Christian baptism, which means we are baptized, we become participants in his death and resurrection. So even though it was before, it was, it's a partaking. What's so awesome about it is Jesus coming out of the waters, the painter um, has water right here and right, and right here and drops the water all right there. And so you, Jesus is coming up out of the waters and you can see it really is an image of his crucifixion. And so it's really powerful. Yeah, so it's a part, just as the Eucharist, this is my body broken, this is my blood shed for you, is a participation in what is about to take place. Um, so did Jesus baptize uh, them? Um, we, the church has always assumed that, that he did because Paul was very clear that John's baptism is not the same as the baptism of Jesus. Um, and he received it. We do, have, we do have that, that Paul was baptized by Ananias. Why are you tarrying? Arise, call on the name of the Lord, and receive the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized. Paul is baptized. Um, but I can't think off the top of my head of any place where it says, and Peter came up first and was baptized. You know, I, I, can't, I can't think of, uh, of that. Um, so. Oh yeah, I would. I would say all. I would say all of them. I would say prior to that, it would have been a, a baptism like John's, because there is a place that does refer to the apostles baptizing before his death. Um, but I would say that that was like preparation baptism. It was like John's baptism. In fact, it's a really weird thing. At first, it says that Jesus was baptizing, and then later on the author clarifies, well, not actually Jesus. It was his disciples. Um, and it, so it's, a, it's, it's kind of, a, when I say weird, interesting note um, uh, in, the, in the scriptures. So what we have here is the, the power and breath of the Spirit given to uh, the apostles, given to the apostles, um, and again, that ministry, what we, we saw given to Peter is here, and I would argue through Peter to all of them, Peter being the spokesperson for the apostles. But here, clearly, given to, to all of them, with the exception of Thomas, which we don't have time to get into. Um, but um, uh, and it doesn't say that he received that, but again, the church has always assumed that he had received that um, uh, in that encounter with Christ. Um, but here he breathes on them the Holy Spirit uh, for their, uh, it's their ordination. They're setting up, being set apart for this ministry of reconciliation as really the first bishops of the church. This is not all the disciples here, like on Pentecost. This is the, this is the 11, no, 10, <laughs> Right, Judas was gone, and Thomas was um, out grocery shopping or something. So uh, um, uh, the only thing I, I, I do want to say about Thomas, and I, this is, I think, from my own thoughts, and probably someone should do research and do a PhD dissertation on this because I never will. 
I just come up with ideas and say that would be really cool and then I never do anything about it. But is there a foreshadowing here in that the other ten are there. Thomas is not, right? Then Thomas encounters him a week, a, a week later, probe my wounds and, you, you know, my Lord and my God and, and all of that wonderful thing. But that, that idea of separation... All the other apostles lived out their ministry in what was kind of the known world, okay? So they may have been very far from each other, but in a sense, they were really still together kind of proclaiming the gospel in the known world. Thomas gets separated from the others according to tradition and goes to the far-off land of India, right? Uh, and, and, and is the founder, I mean, Jesus, obviously the founder, but the founder of the church there. And for many centuries, that church in that area was really not part of, I mean, it was sacramentally and so forth, but really part of the church in Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, Gaul, Canterbury. It really had its own distinct history for centuries. What's absolutely incredible is at times there was almost no contact between the church in, in the Far East and the church in the Mediterranean world. And yet when they were coming, to, coming together, guess what? The, the faith in its essence, including icons and stuff, though different styles, was identical. That's pretty wild. That's like Holy Spirit stuff. Turns out they had the same Holy Spirit as we did in the West. You know? All right. So anyway, I just think that's worth someone doing, the, like connecting it to the fact that Thomas wasn't there and that this part of the church, Martoma Church, ends up kind of being separated from the, for lack of a better term, I mean no disrespect, church proper for centuries. You know? Anyway. All right, back to what we're talking about here. All right. Um, so we see it given to Peter, and I would argue to Peter and all the apostles through Peter. Here we see it given to all the, the apostles, the apostolic community. Um, uh, and we see uh, uh, here the words of ordination for a, a priest um, that, that is here as well. Okay, uh, also now let's look at James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Is anyone among you, that is among the church, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Now, the Greek word here is the word for presbyter, translated in the English elder, but it's the word for priest. So it's, don't, it, it doesn't mean go to the old guys of the church. Okay? It means go to your priest. Okay? Go to your priest. Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, 
he will be forgiven. So this idea that through the sacraments of the church, through the anointing here, we also see forgiveness of sins. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this if we have time to get to anointing. But look at the next verse now, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Something that is so incredibly powerful that we don't do that the early church did is that the church community would be gathered and the priest would would represent, of course, two things simultaneously. One, the whole family, right? The priest or the bishop, in that case probably in that day, would represent the family, just as the father of a family represents the family. Does that make sense, everyone with me? But he also represents in his ordination, unworthily given to him, but by the grace of God, represents the Lord, okay, to the congregation, okay? So he represents both the whole family and represents the Lord, okay, to the the family. And what would happen is that confession would be out loud, so someone would say, you know, for example, and I'm not putting any sins on, on any of you, okay? But someone would say, you know, I, I have been committing this sin and struggling with this. And I have sinned against God. I have sinned against who I am in the Lord. And I have sinned um, against these other persons. And I ask for God's forgiveness. And I ask for prayer, right? And instead of judgment, the community would come around that person in love and raise them up to the Lord in prayer. Then another would say, I've confessed, I confess rather, I've sinned against God and against myself in the Lord Jesus Christ and against the church and I've committed this sin and I ask God for mercy and for prayer. And then others would say, you know, I'm struggling with that too. And they'd confess their sins. And then the priest, or the bishop, on behalf of the whole church family, but also on behalf of the Lord, would pronounce the absolution so that these people were fully restored to the life of Christ and the church. Very powerful. I do something a couple times a year along these lines, and that is we do the Stations of the Cross, and at the end of the Stations of the Cross, I read the Ten Commandments and I give people an opportunity to either confess quietly within their hearts or aloud. And then I turn and give absolution. It's the closest thing we do to what is being talked about here in the Scriptures. How did we end up with sacramental or private confession to the priest? Well, there were were several reasons, but one was because of the growth of the church and its size, Could you imagine if everyone was in really examining their conscience and confessing their sins all the, right? And you had even 70 people there, right? So part of it was size. Some of it also was that people would infiltrate the church to get goods on people. That started to happen so that they could blackmail people, okay? So they began to infiltrate the church. And then another was... Um, let's say you have a Jewish man and a Jewish wife and they've come to Christ, they've been baptized in Christ, they're in the community, 
and the wife stands up and says with truly a contrite heart, I have sinned against God and against who I am in Christ, against my church family, and except for God, particularly against my husband and my family, and have committed uh, adultery. And I ask for forgiveness and healing in prayer. Well, often these Jewish men would resort back to what they knew, right? When we're angry or we're greatly overcome by emotion, we have, like someone says, oh, I had given up smoking for four weeks and then my sister died and now I'm smoking again, right? Because when we're overcome by emotion, we return to what we knew before because it's comfortable to us. So what were these men desiring to do? Right, drag this girl out to the street and stone her. And of course, you know, the guy that she had the affair with is out there with a rock, right? <laughs> you know? Yes, well, she's like, thanks a lot, <laughs> right? Um, you, you know, and so because of all of these reasons in time, because the priest represents both the whole community and restoring the individual to the community, and because he represents God in releasing that person from their sin and having that sin separated from them as far as the east is from the west, that's where the idea of private confession came, came from. Um, for those who are listening uh, by uh, podcast and those who are here today, some will say, okay, so there's some biblical premise for this. Um, however, this is not an Anglican thing. That's a Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox thing uh, to go to confession, uh, private confession with a priest. I want to make it clear that every single prayer book from the time of the English Reformation, including the so-called Protestant book, the book of 1552, in the exhortation actually talks about in inviting people who are particularly troubled by conscience or having a tough time letting go of their sin in accepting God's forgiveness to come to a priest to receive the assurance of absolution for the removal of, of scruple and doubt. Okay? It's been, in, it's been part of the, obviously part of the Anglican Catholic tradition before the English Reformation, but it's been part of the tradition of Anglicanism ever since the English Reformation as well. Is it compulsory? No. A person does not have to do this. But, you know, that's like saying, you know what, I don't have to ever see a dentist either. Right? I don't ever have to go see a doctor, right? That's true. You don't, right? Um, I, can, I can just treat myself at home. It's true. It's true. Not necessarily healthy. <laughs> Not necessarily the best idea. There's an incredible and powerful grace given to release people from things that they have struggled with uh, in holy confession. Uh, it's also a, a very strong weapon against spiritual warfare. There are times, it, sometimes it's in one time, sometimes it takes several times, but people have been released from some things that they have struggled with spiritually for decades, and they are released from it. It's also a good spiritual weapon when the devil comes and says, Really? 
Well, you, do you really think you're forgiven for that abortion or that adulterous affair or that murder or that what adult stealing or the drunkenness or the, what you know? Do you really think you're forgiven? And you have that marked moment of God's grace that says you are forgiven. And the cross of Jesus separates that sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And the Father does not associate that sin with you anymore. As it says somewhere in Hebrews, <laughs> if I was a, a better evangelical, I'd know exactly where, that he remembers no more the sins of his people. That's assuming that they've confessed them, by the way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Otherwise, he remembers them quite well. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, so... Um, yeah, holy, holy confession it has its ground in the Bible. It is certainly patristic. It is also part of the Anglican post-English Reformation tradition um, and um, is, is something I, I truly believe, as I was saying, people claim C.S. Lewis said this, I really think that we would do far better as, as a church family, as a diocese, etc., as a church, as globally, if uh, as much as possible, I mean, certainly there's people that can't read and, and so forth, but as much as possible, if we were all committed to receiving Holy Communion at least every Lord's Day, if not more frequently, with proper preparation, right, um, and uh, praying morning and evening prayer every day and sought Holy Confession frequently, you know, uh, maybe four times a year, maybe once a month, I'd say a minimum of twice a year. Uh, holy confession. Now, I, know, I know it's not the same as public confession, but I think on uh, you know, the, the service where you handed out the meals, yeah. where people came up with, you know, the, I, that was just incredibly powerful. And, yeah. and I remember trying to hit that nail in, and I squashed my thumb because I, it was just... You know, yeah. And, and you know what's interesting? While sin was certainly part of that sermon, if you listen very carefully, I don't know if it was taped, but if you listen very carefully, this year I decided to focus more on the wounds that people have experienced. Next year it's going to be the sins. I'm going to do the same... Don't tell anybody. I'm going to do the same idea, but it's going to be focused on not our particular woundedness, you know, those who have hurt us, abused us, and, and so forth, but on the particular sins, because those also have to be nailed to the cross, you know. And um, I did a thing one day when uh, someone had mentioned that, you know, they didn't really sin much. And, um, and I said, well, you know, I, I never know what to say to that when people say that. So, I tend to say, oh, well, well, good for you. I, I sin a lot. And, uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, my, my best guess is that they either don't realize their sinfulness um, uh, or they're lying. <laughs> One of the, so I never really know what to say, you know, to that. Um, people say, I don't, you know, I don't really sin much. I, you know, because I sin a lot, or I, mean, I don't know. Or then I often will say, "You're you're definitely closer to the kingdom of God than I am." Um, but one day, in response to someone who said that to me, um, I started. I got on the computer and started thinking about like different 
different things that you know send him and wow it we just don't focus on that uh, you know enough but that could be nailed to the cross as well yeah. jordan um, can you say anything about no uh, yeah. will you say anything about <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, yeah about, uh, i think it's second corinthians but i always forget where paul actually uses the phrase ministry of reconciliation and talks about uh, we have been given authority and i, I know that you could take it either way of we as christians in general or we the apostles yeah yeah well i don't have much more to say about it except that yeah i mean it is clear that while we can we do not have the authority to change the gospel paul says if i or an angel from heaven try to give you a different gospel than that which you have already received don't don't believe it on the other hand the church does have that authority and it it really is in both, and I would say in some ways interpreting that passage, it could be both. It doesn't mean we as in all of us individually. I think it does mean the, the apostles, and we would say the successors there too. Um, but I would also say it means the, the church as, as a whole. Um, that the the church the we does refer to la- laity, but not individually. We we confuse the idea of individuality a lot in 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 faith. Um, you know, when people say to me, you know, about like-minded people getting together, that that's not the definition of of Catholic definition of church. Um, so yeah, I think you know the church as a whole receives something like the canon of scripture of the new testament it, it that's this is the list that was accepted by the whole church east and west um and um uh, you know that i i think that the church does have that you know that authority Well, we, the, the church as a whole, can't, I mean, there are things that the church as a whole receives or does not, you know, does not receive. Um, I mean, we have, like you said, you we, know. the church, have the canon. We, the church, right. something we all do and participate in. Right, but in particular, we, the apostles, we, the ordained, have that authority, as he says in Corinthians, the spiritual fathers. You have many teachers, but you do not have many spiritual fathers uh, in the in the church. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. Others ready to move on? Okay. By the way, can you be forgiven simply by you know getting on your knees and if you can and getting on your knees and opening your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, I am so sorry. Cleanse me in your blood and wash me clean and thoroughly from this. Can you be forgiven that way? No, no. Yes, yes, you can. Um, You can. Absolutely. The problem is, is for most people, not, not all, for most people, um, they will still have a hard time after that, um, believing that they are forgiven, and um, will f- end up going back to the cross and choosing 
to hold on to the shame and guilt of that sin rather than the release and power of the cross. And then in a sense, it's, it's even more dangerous. It's even more dangerous. And so that seems to be, for the majority, something that people do not experience as much through the grace given in sacramental confession, where they feel released. Mm-hmm. versus something that's just in your mind. Yeah. And I'm thinking that in my background, well, well it's not... It, there's something about the physicality of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I agree. And, and just even about the whole, this whole sort of apostolic way, and there's just there's a physical aspect of it that might be not in our other church ways. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, I also think, it, it, and this goes right along with what you're saying, is that it's tied to subjective versus objective. I feel forgiven versus I have received forgiveness. One is through the authority of the church, an objective giving of it. It's a right, it's a transaction. That's a, a good way of putting it. Versus at home in this, oh, I do, I feel forgiven. Uh, now I don't feel forgiven, <laughs> you, you know. And so there is something to it being more objective. Just like, I mean, in some sense, and I don't want this to be taken wrongly, can a man and a woman who are approaching marriage be so together, so in the Lord, and I'm not saying in any sinful way, so together, so in the Lord, that they, in a sense, can feel subjectively, that they are already one in the Lord. Yes. And yet there's something to that objective moment of the day of the wedding that says, you are no longer two, but one. And then as I like to whisper, so go now, finally, without sin, and have fun. You know, but I, yeah, no. So, um, 